This episode of the Think Podcast is brought to you by the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group. This is an amazing group filled with believers in Jesus, optimistically working to create great commission hubs for the spread of the gospel, the furthering of Christ's kingdom, and the emergence of Christian culture in the world. We are working through the three spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state to make it happen. Check out the group by going to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Christian Culture Builders. Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. That's what we're all about, equipping believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, first question you might have for me is, Joel, what the heck? It's Wednesday, and normally you do Worldview Wednesdays with Pastor Rafe, and it looks like you're going solo today. What's the deal? What gives? Well, I'll tell you what gives. Rafe finked out on me. Uh, I'm kidding, mostly kidding. Rafe is actually on vacation with his wonderful, beautiful family, and I can't fault the man for that. How am I going to fault the man for going on vacation? I can't do it. So what am I doing today? I'm doing a live Q&A to answer your questions. And, uh, you know, this we've done a few of these. We've done two of these, actually, in the past. And I always end up getting really good, very challenging questions, but they typically don't come in right away. They typically take a little time. So while we're waiting for the questions to come in, let me just really quickly give a plug for for two things. The first thing I want to give a plug for is the Think, no, the, this is the Think Podcast. No, I want to give a a plug for the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group. This is a group that we started, oh, two weeks ago, something like that. And what it is, is it's, if if you listen to the audio of the podcast, if you're listening to the audio, you know that lately our episodes have been sponsored by this group. They've been brought to you by this group. And so you already know that the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group is a group for believers in Jesus, Christians, who are working optimistically to create great commission hubs for the propagation of the gospel, for the furthering of Christ's kingdom, and for the emergence of fruitful, robust Christian culture. And really what this is, is it's a space, a virtual space for believers in Jesus Christ who want to not only not only live out their their lives kind of in in peace which is a good thing it's a good thing to live a peaceful and quiet life the apostle paul says in fact that's why we should pray for our leaders so that we can do that but these this group is for people who don't just want to go along to get along to be peacekeepers but to spread the peace that is only found in jesus christ by working with the pillars of culture and the spheres of authority that God has instituted. Now, those three spheres of authority, according to Scripture, there are there are these three spheres of authority that the Bible actually lays out 
a system of governance for, or at least proper governmental roles or, or roles of, of uh, author, uh, authorial hierarchy, we might say. Hierarchical authority, we'll put it that way. And those three spheres are the household, the church, and the state. In scripture, you will find instructions for each of those spheres of authority. And because those are instituted by God for the good of people, for the good of the world, for the, the flourishing, we might say, or the well-being of human beings, what we want to do as Christians is we want to stand firmly on God's word, and we want to work within those spheres and to, to shape those spheres, so it, all to the glory of Jesus Christ, using biblical parameters and using biblical guidelines and commands in order to help those spheres function properly the way that God designed them to function. Along with that, we also recognize that as we look out at society, there are pillars of society by which society is upheld and which, if shaken, will, will impact people's lives. Um, a couple of weeks, maybe three, four weeks ago, I had profess, college professor and Christian apologist Caldoun Swice on the show. And we talked about the pillars of society and how we shake them in Jesus' name. And when I had Keldoon on, we talked about these different pillars. We talked about um, politics, sports, um, the uh, educational sphere, and, and, and all the rest. And we talked about how to influence them for Jesus' name. So, now, how does all this tie into the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group? Well, this is a group of people who are bought into the vision, not just of sitting idly by and waiting for persecution to come, not just um, not just content to let the world dominate these spheres of authority, dominate these pillar pillars of culture, but to actually influence them or even build our own spheres. Um, or let me say, build our own pillars. So I'll give you an example of this. Now, this is a, a brother who's not in the group, but I respect what he's doing greatly. Um, King Ginger uh, is his YouTube channel. Um, now, his I met him at the Fight Laugh Feast conference, but his name is, well, his name is escaping me. I keep, But on, on YouTube, he's I'm King Ginger. And uh, Marcus Pittman, there it is, Marcus Pittman. Marcus Pittman is a movie producer, film producer, and he produced uh, videos like, if you've ever seen Babies Are Murdered Here, Babies Are Still Murdered Here, about the pro-life movement. But he's creating a streaming service called Lure, L-O-O-R, that is built on the idea, the philosophy that good movies Movies should be good, but they should also have no nudity in them and, um, you know, no obscenity of that kind. And so, uh, you know, that's a really good thing. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to influence and build a, a within the entertainment pillar. He's, he's creating a competing institution to Hollywood. I think that's a really great thing. Um, I just had a conversation in the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group earlier with a couple of guys who one of them is an admin for the group, Tyler Terdici, uh, Terdici. Um, and the other one is um, Arturo Hurtado, 
both of them are talking about creating 24-7 live streaming networks for Christian content. Arturo is focusing on like street-based, street-aimed content, uh, as he puts it more like uh, urban, geared towards an urban mindset, geared more towards ethnic minorities. Um, Tyler is talking about a similar concept, but he's he's talking about a streaming platform where there would be not just, let's say, sermons or explicitly church-related content, but there would be sports content and you know things of that nature. I really do believe that that is the future of of media, of Christian media. I think there are some who are already doing that. There are some 24-hour YouTube channels you can watch if you're in, you know, if you know where to look. But then there's also RefNet, Reformation Network, which was started by Ligonier Ministries. And they, they've got a 24-hour church content-based streaming service. It's an app you can get. I enjoy it. But the point is this, this group, Christian Culture Builders, is for people who want to create and build institutions. And I was inspired to start the group after my interview with Brian Sauvey. And literally that interview is called The Rise of the Christian Culture Builders. Brian is in that group as well. Um, uh, shared some amazing insights recently on how to start a school. Um, Blake White, who I interviewed yesterday on the Think Podcast, he is also in the group. He also shared some amazing insights on how to start a school. They're starting Abilene Christian Academy down there in Abilene, Texas. So if you're into that sort of thing, join this group. Join this group. We've got, um, it's been growing. It's been growing. We've got uh, close to 100 people in there, 90-something people in there so far. Um, it's growing at a slow pace, and I'm very happy about that because I really only want people in there who are focused on this sort of thing, who are really bought into that ethos. I will say we had a live room chat yesterday, a virtual chat, small circle of people, where we talked about building, we talked about theology, we even got into uh, a church, marriage, what makes a city a good target in terms of how to build culture in a in a city and and how to find a good strategic point. And it was awesome. Man, it was truly awesome. So we do a lot of fun stuff. I'm probably going to start rolling out some evangelism trainings in that group um, to help people who are passionate about sharing the gospel in a compelling way, but maybe need some practical skills. That's one of the things that we do through the Think Institute. So um, so check out that group. And I just got a comment from Tyler, Terdici. Okay, I thought it was Terdici. I've been saying Terdici, but it's good to know, Tyler. Thank you. Okay, so it is time now for us to get into your questions. So now let's enter the segment of the show where we answer your questions. I have not looked at these in advance, so I have no idea what I'm getting into. And I see the first question is from Donna Flanke. And uh, Donna is always great for throwing a, uh, a curveball my way. Um, so let's see what she's got for us today. Oh, um, by the way, if you have a question and you're watching live, drop it in the comments because otherwise I'm just going to ramble. I've, we've got one hour. So if you've got something you want to ask about the Bible, the Christian life, church life, government lockdowns, politics, the spheres of authority, 
theology, the Christian worldview, Christian metaphysics, Christian anthropology, Christian morality, Christology, eschatology. Uh, if you don't know what any of these terms mean, and you're like, well, what do these terms mean? And you want a definition. I am here to serve you. I am here to give you answers as best as I can from God's word, um, from the biblical worldview. So if you have questions, that's what I'm here for. That's what we're doing today. This is Worldview Wednesday. We want to help you confidently stand on God's word so that you are prepared to go out into the world and to fulfill your piece of the Great Commission. That's why we're here. So first question from Donna Flanke. When it comes to salvation, what do you think is the balance needed between the intention of the heart and following truth? Is faith in Christ the only thing needed, or do the details of the faith matter? Okay, so good question. Here's why I think this is a good question, is because Scripture emphasizes what is necessary for salvation, and truly there is no more pressing question that we can be asking than what is necessary for salvation. If God created this world good, and our primary problem is that we are sinners, fallen, broken, guilty sinners, who one day are going to have to come face to face with the God who created everything good, and the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death, then our primary need in life is to figure out a way to get right with God, with the holy God. So the question of salvation, very, very important. It's something that we all need to to ask. It's something that we all need to come to grips with. It's something that we all need to be ready to answer. And the good thing here is that the Bible does give us the answer. So the question is, is it enough to sort of have a good intention in your heart? Um, well, well, really, there, I see three things here. On the one hand, there's the intention of your heart, what we might call the sincerity of our belief. On the other hand, we've got belief in Christ, faith in Christ. And then there are the details of that faith. So I do see three components to your question, Donna. Correct me if I'm wrong. But let's talk first about sincerity of heart. Now, sincerity can be a good thing, but it can also be very misguided and it can actually be deadly. Now, according to the Bible, no one sincerely, down to their heart of hearts, disbelieves in God. According to Romans 1, 18 through 24, everyone knows God and yet we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, so what does that mean for us? What, well, what that means is that there are no, no one is, is ignorant of God to such an extent that he or she is therefore scot-free or off the hook in terms of needing to get right with God. Everyone, even if you're ignorant of God, it, it's, it's a culpable ignorance. In other words, you're, you're ignorant of God, but in your heart of hearts, in the core of your mind, the deepest seat of your will and your thinking and your reasoning, you are suppressing the truth about God that you know. And I'm not saying this self-righteously. I do that. I, I, uh, you know, did the same thing apart from Christ. And still to this day, I'm sure there's plenty of suppression going on. And my prayer is that, and Lord, hear my prayer is that the Lord would root out, expose, and eradicate that suppression because I want to follow Christ with all my thinking, with all my heart, with all my will. So sincerity is something that we might we might feel that we are very sincere, but we can be sincerely wrong. 
We can be sincerely headed in the wrong direction. I remember when I was back in college, I went to school out in Pennsylvania. I'm from Illinois originally, suburbs of Chicago. And I remember there was one, I guess it was like a maybe a Thanksgiving break where I was driving home. I got in my car and headed out on the road. And this was, of course, before the days of GPS. And I get on the road and uh, I have to get on to, I, I, I drive down to Interstate 80 and I get on 80 and I start driving home. Okay. And I'm, I'm supposed to get onto 80 West and I'm driving for 45 minutes and, and I'm looking around and nothing looks familiar. Now it's, it's the middle of the night because I left at like 9 PM and I've, I had a long drive ahead of me, like six, seven, eight hours, but nothing looked familiar around me. And after 45 minutes, I kid you not, I realized I had been driving in the wrong direction. I had gotten onto 80 East I, absentmindedly. I don't know if I was listening to, you know, my, my Christian music mashups. I, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing uh, that was distracting me, but I, I went on, I, I was sincerely headed in the wrong direction. My sincerity did nothing to affect my closeness to my destination. In other words, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I was actually getting further and further away from home. So the details of our sincerity and what we're putting our trust in is crucially important. Now, as to the question of whether or not faith in Christ is sufficient in terms of the details that we need, well, the Bible says that in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So salvation, God's gift of eternal life comes in Christ Jesus alone. It only comes in him. What that means is two things. There is no salvation outside of Christ, and Christ is sufficient for our salvation. Um, the, it, Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when the Apostle Peter said that in Acts 4, he was riffing off of a statement that was publicized in the ancient Roman world, talking about the emperor that said that there is no other name under heaven than the emperor, I think it was probably Augustus, correct me if I'm wrong, by which we, we are saved. And Peter appropriated that and said, no, it's Jesus who saves us, and we're not talking about a mere military victory, we're talking about salvation for eternity, eternal life. So when you die, according to Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for a man once to die, and after that, after that comes the judgment. And the only thing that will matter, according to Revelation, on that day is whether your name is written in the book of life. How is your name written in the book of life? If you, well, it's the Lamb's book of life. So if you believe in the Lamb, if, if the Lamb died for your sins and, and you've trusted in him, you will be saved. You will be saved. So there is nothing else that's necessary for salvation. The details matter, but it's the detail of trusting in Christ alone. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, not by works, so that no one may boast, so that no one may boast. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our adherence to the law. We are not saved by uh, doing a good daily deed. We are not 
Now, are there finer points of our theology or even very crucial points of our theology that are not as fine but very important that if we miss them, we we are not truly saved? I would say yes. Um, People talk about the Trinity in that way. I had a friend ask recently whether I thought that even belief that Jesus is God is necessary for salvation. I'm, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say that even if at the moment of your belief in Jesus, you don't fully understand that, that we are obligated to, as disciples of Jesus, we're supposed to um, obey everything that he commanded. We're supposed to, we're supposed to learn. That's part of the great commission is to teach our disciples, disciples of Christ to obey everything Jesus commanded. And I'm going to say this, if you don't understand Jesus is God and you're worshiping him, then you actually think that you're worshiping someone who's not God, and that's actually a problem. So I would say that we need to iron out that uh, post-haste and realize Jesus is God. Are there other theological issues that we need to have uh, have a hold of in order to be saved? Yeah, I think so. I think you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross. I think that you have to believe that Jesus was buried. I think that you have to believe that Jesus rose again on the third day. All of this according to the scriptures and that Jesus is currently Lord. I think that um, according to John 1.12, whoever received Jesus, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. What does it mean to believe in his name? What does it mean to receive him? It means, according to Romans 10.9 and 10, it means to confess Jesus as Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So there's a belief in the content of the gospel, the propositional content of the gospel, what the gospel is, but then there's also a submission to him as Lord and a reception of him as Lord, as king, as ruler, the one on the throne, as well as my personal savior and the savior of God's people. So, Donna, I hope that answered your question. I'm guessing you probably have a follow-up. But uh, let's move on. Okay, here's one from Rob Vance. Rob Vance. Rob is a member of the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group, and Rob was in our chat last night. This brother is a great brother. Good dude. I'm, uh, I'm very blessed to get to know him. Rob, don't let it go to your head, man. Uh, All glory to Christ. You know that. I know that. Approaching deeper Bible study, Rob says. What simple framework, hermeneutics, would you suggest to the person who wants to read Scripture for answers as opposed to simply accepting what anyone says? Ooh, good question. Um, Well, first of all, let's recognize the importance of doing exactly this. So the Apostle Paul, let's see, in... um, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, there was a group of Jewish believers. This is these they were they were Old Testament believers, not yet Christians. But they heard the gospel. And according to Acts chapter 17, 11, it says this: These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Berean, uh, soon-to-be Christians, they they were Jewish believers at this point, examined the scriptures to see if the gospel that they heard from Paul and others was true. They understood that if they, if, if, if a message was from God, 
then then they would not be the first then then it wouldn't uh let's put it this way if the message they were hearing was from god then it should have been pre-taught or um given in advance even in types and shadows in the old testament in other words what they wanted to know is hey did this message that paul is giving to me did this just did paul just make this up out of whole cloth or is this something that God's been trying to teach us or 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 alluding to or foreshadowing for a thousand years in scripture? And that's exactly what they did. They so they so and guess what? They're called noble for doing this. So this is a noble thing to go to scripture to test messages and to figure out if they actually are from God. That's a noble thing to do. Uh first John says, Beloved, first John 4 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For, here's the importance, here's the need for this. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, so here's Rob asking this question. We're talking about deeper Bible study, and we're talking about people who don't just want to accept what anyone says, understanding the fact that there are many false prophets out there. How do we study scripture to see if the ideas that we're um, uh, being exposed to are actually biblical. Okay. I think one of the best ways to do that is to be prepared in advance before the message comes to understand how do you, how, how do you, um, how do you learn what the Bible says anyway? And then once you know how to interpret scripture anyway, positively, let's say, then we can use scripture negatively to test extra-biblical ideas to see if they are anti-biblical or if they are pro-biblical, if they're in support of what Scripture says. So I like to use a four-part methodology when I'm studying Scripture. And this comes directly, I didn't make this up, it comes directly from uh, the Apostle Paul and uh, in his letter to Timothy. So that's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, for all scripture is God-breathed and useful for, what are the four things? Do you know? If so, say it with me from home. Teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness. What are those, what are those four things good for? Um, well, when we're, when we're reading scripture, what that means is that all every passage of scripture if you're doing your bible study if you're reading a passage if you are listening to your audio bible on your commute to work or while you wash the dishes or while you uh you know are are getting ready in the morning brushing your teeth all scripture whatever you're listening to whatever you're reading and I, by the way I'm perfectly fine with reading scripture I'm sorry with listening to scripture because the bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through, through the word of christ what you can do is this. You can first determine the big idea of a passage. And I would use the same approach when I preach sermons, by the way. When I, to this day, when I'm, when I'm planning a message or a, uh, a lesson, I'll use this four-part approach. What's the big idea of the passage? What is the authorial intent? What is the doctrinal content or, or proposition that the author is trying to get across? not trying to get across, is getting across because we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, the Scripture is clear. And so um, the passage that you're reading has a point. The author has a point. We're not 
people who just read scripture and then go, hmm, what does this mean to me? I, what, what am I sensing here? No, the, the author has a particular point. That's teaching. Okay. According to Paul, then in 2 Timothy 3.16, that passage also is good for reproof. Reproof is another word for rebuke. Re rebuke is another word for slapping you in the face and calling you out for your sin. And scripture is wonderful at doing that. When I learned the Park Community Church method of preaching a sermon, of writing a sermon, and um, I learned this from Jason Helveston, who's a pastor in Logan Square now uh, at, uh, at his church that he planted there a couple of years ago. He, he, what he does is he is great at drawing out from Scripture the cultural lie or the false belief that is going to keep us from obeying or believing the big idea of Scripture. This is the rebuke. So what you have to ask yourself is when I see this big idea in Scripture, what false belief or what desire or what fear is going to keep me from obeying this? So... Take the passage that we're talking about, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The, the main idea of the passage is that all Scripture is breathed out by God and, and useful, profitable, so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. What fear would I have that would keep me from believing that or obeying that in my everyday life? Well, how about this? If I believe the whole counsel of God, the whole Word of God, it's going to make me believe some things that are embarrassing culturally. For example, the the, the world is only 6,000 years old. Ooh, that's embarrassing. I'm going to pay a social cost for that. Okay, but, but now I have to ask myself, why is that a problem for me? Why do I hesitate with that? Well, because I'm afraid people are going to laugh at me or ridicule me. Okay, well, why is that a problem? Ah, because my, I have a, a deep value. I, put, I place a high value on being respectable or on being seen as respectable or on being respected. Ooh, okay. Now scripture is rebuking me, reproofing me. Because scripture doesn't change. This passage doesn't change. All scripture is breathed out by God, which means I need to conform my thinking to scripture, not to try to twist scripture over around to what I find desirable or or what's gonna help me feel respectable. Okay, now correcting. This is where we find scripture pointing to Jesus, where we find every passage of scripture, uh, uh, as as um, Charles Spurgeon said in his sermons, he always made a beeline for the cross as fast as he possibly could. All right. This is where we find our gospel application. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ solve my problem? Okay, so I've got this respectability problem. I've got this fear of being disrespected or uh, seen as a fool, all right? How does the gospel solve that problem? Well, Jesus Christ was seen as a fool for me. Jesus Christ fully believed that all Scripture was God-breathed. He obeyed the Old Covenant law, except in those parts where he transcended it. That's a whole other conversation. Feel free to ask me about it. But Jesus risked obeying Scripture even though, by the way, it did, he did pay a heavy social cost. In fact, he paid with his life, didn't he? Wasn't he crucified? And Jesus was willing to do that in order to obey God. And in the process of doing that, he laid down his life because they crucified him. But he, he did that not just 
It wasn't just a social cost he was paying. He was paying the cost for my sin. And Jesus died for me and my own fear of being disrespected. And when he was buried, that sin was buried with him, you, you might say. The Apostle Paul says that my record of sinfulness was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And when Jesus rose, I got my clean slate. Or at least when he was when he was killed, buried, and rose, I got my clean slate. So now I'm free. I'm free from the consequences of that fear. I'm also free not to be afraid anymore because my Savior goes before me and he died for that sin and I'm accepted by him. If I'm accepted by Jesus, why the heck would I need to be accepted by anybody else? <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying? And then finally, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Okay, so what's my practical application? My practical application is how I'm going to apply this passage to all of life. Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, how am I going to apply that to all of life? I'm going to use Scripture in this way. Look at this. You see that? I'm going to use Scripture to teach me, rebuke me, correct me, and train me in righteousness. I'm going to believe that God's Word does that, and I'm going to approach it in that way. Now, Rob, what a very long-winded way of getting to your answer. When I do this regularly with Scripture, okay, what I can then do is I can go out to these ideas that are out in culture, and I can test those ideas against Scripture. And here's the incredible thing. Oftentimes, um, especially in Western civilization, when Western society, when people want to gain credibility for their ideas, to garner credibility, they will pin some Bible proof text on it as a way of gaining credibility. Man, I don't know what happened. I think we got hit by an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse over here. I can't believe there are still people watching. God bless you guys. I lost internet. I, I lost cell phone service. Something happened. I have no idea what that was. But here we are, and we're back. So I guess I guess we're back. Um, I, I'm not even going to attempt to pick up where I left off. Now, maybe I will. Let me think. Okay, so we interpret scripture. Oh, yes. So have a have a ready um, have a uh, uh, have a have a ready interpretive scheme for scripture, so that when a when an idea comes your way, you can test it against what the Bible actually says. I I guess hopefully that's helpful, Rob. Man, I'm I'm sorry. I got disconnected in the middle of. Uh, in the middle of the broadcast here. Okay, we got another, we've got a comment. Uh, this is from Curtis Cutler. Curtis, how you doing, man? He says, use a grammatical historical genre and literalistic hermeneutic. Uh, I'm good with that. You know, um, I, well, here's the thing. So I like to say, I heard this somewhere, I didn't make this up, but I like to call my hermeneutic a redemptive historical hermeneutic. Um, yes, we need to look at genre. Yes, we need to look, we need to be literalistic. Um, what I like John Frame's phrase, what he says is he calls himself something like a biblicist or so, something akin to biblicism is sort of his way of thinking. In other words, we believe that God's word is true implicitly. It, it, it is true. Um, yes, we look at a grammatical historical view. In other words, we want to look at the original intent of the author. 
why I like to say I like to follow more of well, it's really it's so similar, but I like to say redemptive historical because I really do believe that all of scripture is slanted or tilted toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, think of a great big uh gigantic bowl. Uh or better yet, you know you could think of you ever been to one of those museums where at at the entrance of the museum they've got that big round concave funnel and They've got a little slot you can put a coin in. Maybe they don't have these anymore. Um, but you put the coin in and it circles around and around that giant concave dish. And it goes down, 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 down. And then it gets to the bottom and swivels around, you know, super fast, 100 miles an hour. And then click, it goes down into the bottom and and uh, into the um, the pile of coins down there inside the, the apparatus. That's like scripture. Okay, you can start at any point. And some points are closer than others, but eventually, if you follow the arc of Scripture, if you follow the the path of that passage, it's going to point to Christ. And this is something that I'm working on with my kids. Elisa and I are working on this with our children, is when we do family worship and we read Scripture, we, we talk about how does this Scripture point to Christ? How does it point to the Messiah? And guess what? The cool thing is, you don't have to contrive that. After a while, you start to see how every passage points to Christ. And that's why I say redemptive, because Christ is our redeemer. So hopefully that's helpful. Tell me if you agree or disagree with that, Curtis. I got to tell you, I'm drinking, you know what I'm drinking? Keurig coffee, breakfast blend, Keurig coffee. Guys, I really like it. I'm something, I'm I'm kind of like a coffee snob. But I drink so much of this Keurig stuff, you would think that I would hate it because it tastes kind of like cardboard a little bit or plastic. But it's really good. I'm really I've developed quite a taste for this Keurig coffee. Um so, and I've and I've had artisan fine Ethiopian artisan coffees that I don't even really like. Um, so I don't know what that says about my own personal taste. But um okay. Comment from Donna Flanke, she says, it was Satan. Yeah. Maybe. Um, but we're back now, so not today, Satan. Okay, one more comment. One more question, rather. And uh, this is coming from Donna Flenke. Thinking specifically of denominational differences when it comes to the details of faith, where is the line when it comes to what details of truth matter? All right, so great follow-up from your previous question, Donna. Uh, where do we get out? This is really a question of orthodoxy. Where do we get outside the bounds of orthodoxy? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a guideline when he says in um, in Galatians, and uh, let me just pull that up real quick. Galatians chapter one, and um, I believe it's I believe it's one. He says, uh, "Let's see." In Galatians chapter one, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a quick screen share. So if you're watching this live, you're gonna get to see the Bible Gateway window pop up here. Okay, so Galatians one, verse six. The Apostle Paul, he really lays out 
when he when he has dividing lines for what's acceptable and what's unacceptable in terms of what counts as orthodoxy for him it's really about the gospel and adding nothing else to the gospel so he's writing to the galatians who were at this time in history they were being infiltrated by judaizers paul dealt with judaizers john dealt with proto-gnostics there were these different uh schools of thought that were infiltrating within the church to try and steer believers in jesus christ away from the one true faith um you can read more about that in in revelation one through three there's there were the nicolaitans they're the the followers of uh this lady preacher or prophet who uh sort of went by the code name jezebel but a false prophet nonetheless um, okay, okay, where am I going with this? I'm, I'm, I'm drifting off here. In Galatians chapter 1, it says this, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. Okay, so... Um, the number, the, the first thing we have to watch out for is when someone tries to substitute another gospel in place of the, um, uh, the gospel that we receive, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says. Um, for Paul, someone was cut off from the truth if they tried to admix a little bit of works into the gospel whether that's circumcision, adherence to the law, um, trying to, having begun in the spirit to finish in the flesh. Now that's, that's blasphemy, that's heresy. So look at verse eight here. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a, go a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse beyond him. And really the, the translation there is, let him be condemned or let him be condemned to hell. In other words, Damn that guy. Can you believe that Paul said that? Damn him. Because literally, that is a damnable offense. If you are trying to mix in works into the gospel, you are, um, you are mixed, you, you are, that's a damnable offense. Jesus also said, uh, he, he talked about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as an unforgivable sin. So what was that? Well, that, in the context there, in that passage, you had the, the Pharisees attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. So if you are attributing God's work to Satan, that means you can't believe the gospel. If you are mixing in works to the gospel, which is grace alone through faith alone, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that's damnable because you can't believe the gospel. Um, uh, the Apostle John in 1 John says that if anyone denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, um, he is of the Antichrist. That, that is the Antichrist. Okay, why is that? Because now you have a, a Christ who is not truly incarnate. Um, by the way, the Roman Catholic Church talks uh, maybe maybe guilty of that when they say that uh, Mary was immaculately conceived, and so really uh, Jesus. Uh, what they do is they take the the um, purity of Christ's birth. He was conceived of a virgin and was not 
born with original sin, but they take that a step back and they actually distort that doctrine by making Mary immaculately conceived. And therefore there's something fundamentally changed about the incarnation of Christ. Here's the point. When you twist the gospel, whether you twist it at the incarnation, when you whether you twist it at the um, the Trinity, because the the Trinity, the gospel is Trinitarian. The Father sent the Son to die for sinners, to save them, and to indwell uh, the indwell them with the Holy Spirit, who who actuates their faith. Uh, at, at whatever point you twist the gospel, even if you do it upstream from the gospel or downstream from the gospel. If you're twisting the gospel, you are outside the bounds of orthodoxy. So the details do matter. And as the expression goes down, the devil is in the details. And he will try to infiltrate our orthodox doctrinal beliefs with that same old question that he asked Eve. Did God really say? And so now this is this is um this circles back to Rob Vance's question earlier. How do we test the different views, the different um, messages that we hear. Well, we have to test them according to Scripture. And the gospel is at the heart of Scripture. The gospel is the central message of Scripture. And if we lose the gospel, we lose orthodoxy. We lose um, we lose everything. All right? So hope that's helpful. Uh, Donna says, follow up here. Yes, uh, yet faith without works is dead. The faith leads to obedience, but our works don't save us. That's correct. If they did, we'd be choosing ourselves as our own savior. Yeah, that's correct. Faith without works is dead. Um, and so you might say, well, how do we reconcile Ephesians 2, 8, 9 with James, where he says, faith without works is dead? Well, as Charles Spurgeon says, I have no need to reconcile friends. So there's there's no conflict there. We are saved by grace alone, grace through faith alone, but not faith that is alone. So how can, so let's ask an analogous question here to Rob's question. Rob's question was, how can we test ideas? What about, how do we follow Paul's admonition to test yourself to see if you be in the faith? Well, check your life. Do you have works? Do you have works? Those works don't save you, but true faith will lead to works. Um, John MacArthur Years ago, man, nine, nine years ago, I, I, I would teach my Bible students about this. Uh, there are 11 tests from the book of 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, by which you can test yourself um, to see if you are in the faith. Let me see if I can pull this up. There's a great website that had this. The website's totally outdated. Here we go. So... For the number four j.org. Oh, the website's down. I was going to pull it up for you guys. Um, okay. Go, go, go Google search John MacArthur's talk on that. Um, okay. Michael Jahoski. Michael, am I pronouncing your name right? He says, I'm glad you did finally point that out about faith slash works. Ah, so Michael is my Catholic friend, one of my Catholic friends. Yes, I do have more than one Catholic friend, Michael. Um, Michael, we need to talk about this, and we will talk about this when you come on the podcast, because we we need to talk about the relationship between faith and works. Look, here's the thing that I always try to get across to my Catholic friends. If salvation is an equation, 
then biblically speaking, you would have grace plus faith on one side of the equation. View it as a chemical reaction. Remember those chemical reactions in high school chemistry? View it as a chemical reaction. You've got grace plus faith, and then the arrow, okay, um, and maybe we might say that there's a, a catalyst there if this is a chemical reaction. Um, the catalyst is the Holy Spirit applying that faith to your life, applying that grace to you individually. And then on the other side of the equation is salvation plus works. When you mix that up and when you put works on the other side of the equation and you make works either a component in the salvation or even a catalyst for salvation, now you've distorted the gospel Especially, Michael, if I could be so bold, Dr. James White points this out, that Paul was willing to anathematize, to eternally curse, to damn, or to pronounce as damned, anyone who added even one tiny little act, that of circumcision, to the, the wrong side of the salvation equation. Now, the Catholic Church adds seven sacraments they they add categories like venial sins and mortal sins um they add a whole framework and a whole litany of accompanying beliefs such as the co-redemption the, co the the co-redemptive role of mary i know that's not official canon yet but find me a catholic who doesn't believe that that mary's not a co-redemptive with christ they add all these beliefs which distort the gospel. and but, but all it takes is one. So even if you want to say, well, all those other things don't distort the gospel, all it takes is one. All it takes is one work being added to your salvation, according to Paul, for that doctrine to be anathematized, or really the preacher of that doctrine to be anathematized. So this is where I can't get down with Roman doctrine, Roman Catholic doctrine doctrine. And I think that it's dangerous. I think that it's, I think that if you follow Roman doctrine, you, you are at the very least in danger of being anathematized, of being damned, because you're not fully resting in, in Christ alone. So it's, look, Christian, uh, uh, Protestants, you might say evangelicals, reform types, we get a bad rap because we, what we, we, we say that salvation is not by works and people, therefore think that we downplay works. No, we, we don't downplay works. And if we do, shame on us. I, I make a point not to. Good grief, man. I started a group called Christian Culture Builders because I want people to live out their faith. I'm not justifying myself or vindicating myself here. By the way, notice how I use justifying? You can use justifying in two different ways. You see what I did there? I didn't even think about that. I use justify to mean vindicate. Justify also can mean uh, to, to be declared righteous, um, to, be, to be made righteous in a salvific way. We've got to understand the two different uh, meanings of the word justify because James and Paul use those differently. And that's going to have a major impact on how we understand the relationship of faith and works. But faith and works are related, but works are a product of faith, not faith and works. Uh, we shouldn't see faith and works working together on the wrong side of the equation. Okay, so... You say, still reflecting and praying on that. Totally understand that, man. Um, you say, somewhere between Catholic and Protestant right now. So, Michael, is for those listening later on 
Michael responded. He says, I'm somewhere between Catholic and Protestant right now. I've spent several years in a Protestant church. Okay, man, listen, brother. We are all on a spiritual journey, and I want you to know um, that uh, I don't I don't fault you for that. I don't condemn you for that. Um, I don't uh, I, I I don't want to belittle you for that or look down on you, but in any way, shape, or form. Far from it. Uh, I would I would strongly encourage you keep prayerfully searching scriptures. And man, this is really the I'm watching a theme develop here in this Q and A. Are you guys seeing this? We started out with Rob Vance asking that great question about how to test different ideas. Then we went on that long thing about, about testing ideas through scripture and how to, you know, how to interpret scripture and how uh, then Donna asked about what's outside the bounds of orthodoxy. We talked about how the gospel, which is the heart of scripture is the heart of orthodoxy. And then now we've got Michael J. Hosky's uh, comments about, the gospel and the relationship between faith and works. There's such a clear, God had an agenda for this Q&A today, even though I didn't. And I was even talking to Elisa beforehand. She's like, so you have no agenda for this? I'm like, no, I have no agenda. I don't even know if I'm going to post this to the podcast because it's so random. I, th I think I will, but this is so random today, but I'm watching a theme. Maybe we'll call this one testing ideas from scripture or how to test ideas based on scripture. How do you scripture to test your beliefs. That's a good one. Maybe we'll go with that. Okay. Okay. Running right along. We are, we got to wrap up. I've got nine minutes left. Michael J. Husky says, me. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Tell me what you mean by that, Michael. Okay. Um, David Leach says, works can lead to faith. Works is good. Works is good, David. Works is good. But works do not lead to salvation. Now, does that mean somebody can join the church choir and be discipled into the flock? They join the church choir as an unbeliever and they get discipled in? Absolutely. I would, I would love for every non-Christian that I know to start attending church regularly, start reading the Bible, start serving uh, with the church ministry. Now, you don't want to get somebody like that up teaching. Um, and, a and maybe you say, well, the Joel, you said the choir. That's a teaching ministry. Fine. So they can't join the choir. But get them involved in some way, serving the poor. Why? Because when you associate with Christians and you serve with Christians, you're going to talk to Christians. And what's going to happen? Those Christians, if they're doing their job, are going to be evangelizing you. And sooner or later, you just might, if the Lord wills it, and if the Lord uh, catalyzes this, you're going to become a Christian, man. So yeah, works are good, but um, they don't save. All right. Uh, Michael J. Hosky says, I don't hold to the co-redemptrix theory. All right, well then, wonderful. I said, find me a Catholic who doesn't believe that. You found me one, although you said yourself you're somewhere between Catholic and Protestant. So I don't know if that's the best example, Michael, but uh, but but good. That's good because the Bible specifically says there is. I just didn't. I didn't. I just read that earlier. There is no other name given from heaven among men by which we must be saved. And how about the passage that says there is one God and one mediator between God and man? And by the way, if you don't know of um, the band called. Uh, uh, Ghost Ship, one of my favorite bands. I was listening to them last night, and uh, they've got this great song. 
called Mediator. Check it out. Okay, Nick Smelker says, Smelser? I've been reading your name as Smeckler, Nick. I'm sorry. In my mind, I've been reading it as Smeckler. But I'm realizing now it's probably Smelser. Um, okay, here we go. You say this. You accuse me of skipping you. Yes, I did skip you. You're absolutely right because I wanted to come back to this question. Do women qualify to be elders? All right, brother. Listen, um, I just got into this long conversation with some friends. We were sitting outside while the kids were playing in the pool the other night. And I had a long discussion about this very subject. Now, you asked it as a yes or no question. So I'm just going to say this. No. If you want to ask a follow-up question to that or ask me, <laughs> ask me why I said no, I'm happy to answer. The heart of it comes down, man, there's so many different ways to approach this question. The heart of it comes down, look, if you want one verse, you want a proof text, 1 Timothy 2.12. Let me pull that up on the screen. And I'm going to pull up a website here that is called um, openbible.info. And if you go to openbible.info slash topics slash whatever you want to talk about, um, you will get a, a it's, it's an amazing search engine for uh, biblical matters. Okay, so. All right. So what does the Bible say about women elders. Well, let's look right here. Oh my goodness. Look at this verse. 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man, or sorry, to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What does this passage mean, Joel? Well, as John Frame says, the meaning of a text is the text itself. So what this passage literally means is, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, let's pull that up in context. Okay, let's pull that up in context. Now, you might say, okay, Joel, but Paul is saying, I do not permit that. Well, could that be, um, could that just merely be Paul's preference? Well, earlier in the chapter, look at this. The Apostle Paul says, oh, and by the way, uh, you know, I skipped over a step here, didn't I? What are the functions of an elder? Well, we know what the qualifications of an elder are in Second First Timothy two, first first Timothy two two or three. Uh first Timothy two. Three. First Timothy three. It must be first Timothy three, because I'm looking at first Timothy two. But earlier in first Timothy two, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting jumbled here because I'm anticipating the, the objections. Why am I anticipating the objections? Because when I was a pastor, I preached on biblical eldership and I made an offhanded reference to this passage. And one of our more hmm, vociferous members uh, challenged me on this, on my beliefs here. And it was a whole, it was a whole thing. So I know the objections that come from this, but in first Timothy three, let's see if we can go there real quick. In 1 Timothy 3, the one of the qualifications of an elder is that he be apt to teach. Okay, where do we see that? Right here. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. One of the qualifications of an elder or of an overseer in this passage is that he must be able 
to teach. Okay, now, never mind the fact that this passage also says he must be the husband of one wife. Um, husband of one wife implies manhood, uh, maleness, because only men can be husbands. And you might say, okay, maybe that's just talking about monogamy of either sex. Well, no, because later on, um, there's a qualification for deacons. And deacons, uh, it says, um, it says, it talks about deacons, but then it also talks about, first of all, there is no qualification for husband of one wife, but it does say their wives like, likewise must be dignified. Okay, so there are qualifications here for male and female deacons, or if you want to say male deacons and their wives, but, the, but Paul knew how to give qualifications for women. He also knew how to differentiate between male and female roles, and he knew how to assign certain roles to um, certain people and certain sexes, one sex in particular, um, and he knew how to do it in a way that was not just cultural, in a way that was grounded in deep theology, grounded in um, ontology, and grounded in the nature of male and female. So, um, but you might say, yeah, but it's just Paul saying, I desire, or um, I do not allow, and that's just Paul's preference. Okay, well, um, in the beginning of First Timothy 2, it says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, is Paul giving his preference there? Yes, he's giving his preference. But are we really going to just chalk that up to like a, a cultural thing? Oh, well, in some cultures, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, yeah, that's 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 needed. But in our culture, we don't need that. Well, no, of course not. No one's going to say that. So the fact that Paul is expressing his preference here does not negate the um, the authoritative nature of the instruction. Uh, what about in verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, it says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Well, Paul, that's just your desire, right? Is that just a cultural thing? Is that just personal preference? No, because of course, in, in the uh, congregation, Men are to pray, and they are to lift holy hands without without anger or quarreling. Are we going to really sit here and say anger and quarreling are allowable in some cultural contexts? No, of course not. Of course not. Um, now, some people are going to point to the next few verses, and they're going to say, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire. And, and they're going to say, ah, see, now, there you go. Now, now now we're getting into the more immediate context of verse 12, where Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. And now this is clearly cultural, because are you really saying, Paul, that braided hair and gold and pearls and, and costly attire, that's sinful? Or is is this getting at just, you know, hey, don't be ostentatious with your uh, with your apparel? Um, clearly, this is cultural, right? This is a cultural thing. Well, here's where I'm going to agree with you, and I'm going to say, yes, this is cultural. But if you try to make this whole passage merely cultural and not universally um, instructive and and um, binding on the church, well, you're going to hoist yourself on your own petard here, to use a old English expression. And the reason why is because um, the principle here is that women should 
adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Okay, and and um, more than that, or I should say, accompanying that, they ought to adorn themselves with good works. And now that's transcultural. The gold, pearls, costly attire. There are some cultures where that 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 wouldn't necessarily be seen as ostentatious. Although, I don't know if I can think of a of one of those cultures. I mean, if you're wearing costly attire, gold, pearls, and and um, Alistair Begg talks about, uh, you know, women like this. You can hear them coming before you see them because they jangle as they walk. All right, there is there is sort of a transcultural nature to find gold and pearls and and things like that. But what Paul is basically saying is women, when you're in church, when you're conducting yourself as a a Christian woman, don't do so in such a way that's going to draw attention to yourself. And the implication there is the attention will be drawn away from Christ. So yes, there are cultural instantiations of this, but the instruction is transcultural for all of the church. And it's in that context then that in verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So what's that getting at? Well, um, overseers and elders, which is really the same thing, what, what is their function that sets them apart from the other officers in the church, i.e. the deacons? And what is the way that they shepherd the flock? They exercise authority and they primarily do that by teaching, by teaching. Remember, as we've been talking about in this Q&A, the scripture is what defines the bounds of orthodoxy and um, the scripture is what we use to determine what ideas are true or what ideas are false. And God in his wisdom has given that, that role to men. That doesn't mean that all men are elders, but it does mean that all elders are men. Now, if we didn't have enough evidence already that this is transcultural, not merely um, to be dismissed as some sort of cultural uh, 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 norm for that day and age, you know, because there were loud, brash women maybe in the in the society, which by the way, we have loud and brash women in our society today, don't we? We've got loud and brash women. We We also have men who quarrel. Don't we have men who quarrel? So, so even uh, look, um, we we just read that passage about men not quarreling. So, if we're going to say well, this is just cultural, well, then it it does refer to our culture. I'm not saying all women are loud and brash. Email me if you want to, but good grief, have a little charity in how you interpret me here. Um, okay. What does Paul ground this in? Here we go. Does Paul ground this in what seems natural to us, what seems appropriate to us? Does he ground this in our cultural mores, our cultural norms? No. Verse 13 says this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. A transgressor. Paul is grounding this... Um, stipulation, this instruction for corporate worship, for church polity, he's grounding it in human nature. What he's saying is, going back to creation, going back to a time even before sin had entered the world, Adam was not the one who was deceived. In fact, the serpent, who was more shrewd than any of the other animals, according to uh, Genesis, the serpent knew to go for Eve, not Adam. Why? 
because he knew, if I may say so, he knew that Eve would be easier to deceive, but that Adam would go with Eve passively once she had eaten the fruit. Why is that? Well, God made women, um, God, God made women in a certain way where they are more empathetic, they are more sympathetic, they are more relational. God made men where they see things, generally speaking, more in terms of black and white truth and error. You need both. Within a church, you need both, don't you? Now, why does Paul say that women, or at least wives, can serve with the diaconate Women too, single women. I I, I believe in, in single um, women being elders. But but I'm saying for the sticklers out there who want to just go with the exact letter of the text, it's a it's an admin it's an instruction for wives. Um, why is that? Well, the role of the deacon is different than the role of the elder. Both are very important to the church. You need both. But the elder's job is to teach, to rightly divide the word of truth as Paul instructs Timothy to do, to fight against the serpents who would um, threaten to infiltrate via false teaching into the church, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Man, are you guys seeing the theme of this, this q and I mean, I'm really, it's, it's amazing how God is weaving everything together with your guys' questions. And hopefully the answers are biblical. But um, God made men in such a way that they are less prone to being tripped up by false doctrine because of relational ties or sympathy or empathy. That is the kind of creature, image bearer, you want, God wants, in the elder role. Does that mean that women are insignificant? No. Does that mean that women are less valuable than men? No. I can't even believe I have to say this, but I'm, I'm going to. Because Genesis 1.27 says that God created men and women in his image. So there is no ontological distinction between men and women in terms of bearing God's image, but in terms of functionality, in terms of the beauty of complementarity, there is a difference. Don't stone me for that. I, I didn't create that. There are plenty of times when I wish that wasn't the case. And there are plenty of times when I'm very prone to passivity and I'm a, a son of my father, Adam. And I thank God that in Christ, Adam is not my federal head anymore. In Christ, there's a new reality where I don't have to be passive. I don't have to be um, weak-willed or jellyfish-spined. Jellyfish have no spines. And my wife doesn't have to usurp, uh, you know, authority or, or, um, or uh, my headship over the family but instead can come alongside me and support me and help me because I need a lot of help and I can lead her in a godly Christ-like way because she needs leadership. And man, in our best days, we function together so incredibly well like Christ and the church according to Ephesians 5. But there's a complementarity there. There's a, a patriarchy there, if I can use an objectionable term nowadays that is ingrained by God. And if done right, male eldership is a wonderful thing. It is an awesome thing. It is a godly thing. It is a helpful thing. It is a um, 
It's a way to keep the church solid and strong. And rather than try to replace male eldership with something else, we should be supporting the men of our church to prepare them for eldership. We should be supporting, we should be encouraging the wives of the church to support their husbands in that. Maybe I just lost some followers with that. I hope not, but I think that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, what'd you think? That's it. That's all I've got for you today. Those are all your questions. So um, thank you guys. Nick, thank you for asking that question. And um, I hope that this has helped to equip you to combat false teachings and um, false ideas with Scripture. Scripture is a sword. It's a scalpel. It's a surgical tool. It's a, it's a dagger. It's our only offensive weapon um, in terms of our spiritual armor. But um, God bless you guys. I hope you heard something helpful. Check out the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group. And this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. That's all I have for you today. So until next time, I hope it means you think. Thank you.